uh, together this morning. So on uh, one of my return trips from Tanzania, not this one, but a previous one, there was an older gentleman sitting beside me on the airplane, and he had a plastic bag labeled with the acronym IOM. And IOM is the International Organization for Migration. This is the United Nations-related agency that moves displaced people throughout the world. And so it meant that I was sitting next to a refugee. And I wasn't able to ascertain where he was from or where he was going, but through our limited communication, I was able to ascertain he was just one of the 4.4 million people that are internally or externally displaced in Africa alone by conflict, famine, or violence. And it was clearly his first ever time on an airplane. He didn't know what the seatbelt was, how anything was operating or happening, so he helped him with that. Uh, helped him select French as the in-flight selector for his movies, uh, meaning he was probably from West Africa somewhere. And we had a short flight, and, and after we engaged in just very limited conversation, and he went on his way, I thought to myself, everything that man owns right now is in that little plastic bag. And the IOM people whisked him off to who knows where, and it reminded me and just struck home to me again about what it means and what it feels like to be a refugee, to be a person who has lost your home. Well, my wife uh, Meg and our daughter Sophie, myself, and John Kwan, Ruth Ellen, uh, Peter Ash, and Brady Ash, all from Jericho Ridge, were part of a, a team of people who were just recently returned from Tanzania in East Africa. And there we were leading a summer camp for kids with albinism, which is a genetic condition, and many of them have lost their homes uh, and they also have experienced what it feels like to be displaced. And one of the things that happens to me, I don't know how you feel, but when I travel and I'm gone for a period of time and then I come back and I open the door and I walk into my home, I just go, ah, I'm home. Right? That sense of home, that sense of, um, to me it's a feeling of comfort it's a feeling of security, it's a feeling of safety, it's a feeling of being surrounded by people that you love most of the time. <laughs> but so many places in our world today, people are forced to flee their homes. And that's why I'm so proud of our church for the work that you guys have done to support in little and in big ways uh, people who are refugees, displaced people. And our text today is, in the book of Second Kings, is actually about refugees. It's about a whole group of people who are displaced. And we're going to see that just like many refugee stories, it has a long and complicated history to it. But it also has at its heart a very clear message for you and I about the promises of God and about the propensity of our hearts to drift from what's good and right. Uh, there's a story about the consequences of forgetting or ignoring God's invitation to do justice and love mercy and walk humbly with compassion in the world. 
But here at Jericho this summer, uh, we're going through the book of 2 Kings. And through the summer months, over the last number of years, we've just been walking our way through the story of God as it unfolds in the Old Testament. So just a quick overview of where we are at at this point in history. Uh, we started at the beginning with Genesis. And Genesis records the story of God's calling of a family who's to be a light to the world. And they did a bit of a poor job at it. And so they found themselves as refugees exiled uh, in the nation of Egypt. But God delivered them from Egypt. And God brought them out to a land that God promised them. And God gave them judges to lead them who were wise men and women uh, who fulfilled both a spiritual and also a judicial function. And God gave them prophets to lead them. But the people said, you know what? We're not super impressed with that. We like the nations around us. Their structures of leadership, they have kings. We want a king. And so God gave them a king. And so around uh, 1051 BC, the time of the kings begins in ancient Israel. And the first king of Israel is Saul. And then after Saul, we have David, maybe one of the most famous kings in ancient Israel, followed by Solomon. And in the period of Solomon, uh, the, the kingship of Israel really hits its peak. It's in its economic prime, its military prime, uh, all of the things. Uh, but then after that, there's a steep decline sharply after Solomon. And in about 931, the kingdom actually splits into two kingdoms. And so the kingdom in the south uh, is led by Solomon's son. And there's two tribes of the 12 tribes of Israel that stick together and go by the name of Judah often in the scriptures. And then in the north, in the kingdom, there's about 10 tribes that stick together, and they band together, and oftentimes they're referred to as Israel in the north. And you can see some of the prophets and the books of the Bible that were written during this time period. And it's a very tumultuous time because these nations are often at odds with each other, and fighting with each other. Sometimes they're not. They can get along for a little while and then they go to war against another nation or another nation comes to war against them. And so it's really chaotic in this period of history. And today, we come to the end, the terminus of one of those lines. Almost 200 years and 19 evil leaders later, the northern kingdom, which is never led effectively by a good king, comes to a tragic but predictable end. And the people are taken into exile as refugees, never to return, in fact. And so we, gotta, we have to ask ourselves, what happened in this whole process, in this period of history? Well, a few years ago, when we visited the British Museum in London, England, we were able to see some of the ancient stone carvings that were discovered by uh, archaeologists and were recovered from Assyria, uh, from the area of Nineveh. And this one tells the story of King Hoshea of Israel. He's the last king of Israel. And this, um, this picture shows him coming and bowing down and paying tribute 
to the king of Assyria, but the inscription talks about all the while this king was plotting treason and planning on tricking the king of Assyria. So if you have your Bibles or your devices, turn with me to 2 Kings chapter 17. And we're going to read the story of King Hoshea of Israel and the king of Assyria. 2 Kings 17 verse 3, I'm reading from the New Living Translation, says, King Shalmaneser of Assyria attacked King Hoshea. So King Hoshea was forced to pay heavy tribute to the nation of Assyria. But Hoshea decided to stop paying the annual tribute and conspired against the king of Assyria by asking King So of Egypt to help him shake free of Assyria's power. These were the two major political powerhouses in the world at this time, Egypt and Assyria. When the king of Assyria discovered Hoshea's treachery, he seized Hoshea and put him in prison. So Israel's in a weakened state at this point. They've already been attacked. Pastor Mike described a little bit about that last week. And they're already a little bit under Assyria's thumb. And now King Hoshea decides, you know what? I wonder if we could sort of sneakily try and get Egypt to come and help us. And maybe we could break free of the Assyrian Empire. And so he decides he's going to just not pay Assyria. He's going to take that money, sneak it down to Egypt, and try and buy some political and military help. But Assyria finds out about this. And instead of saying, that's okay, don't worry about it, of course they come with full military presence. And the Assyrian army lays siege to the capital in the north, which is called Samaria. And so let's keep reading in verse 5 of 2 Kings 17. The king of Assyria invaded the entire land. For three years, he besieged the city of Samaria. And finally, in the ninth year of King Hoshea's reign, Samaria fell. And the people of Israel were exiled to Assyria. They were settled resettled in colonies in Halath along the banks of the Habor River in Gozan and in the cities of the Medes and the Persians. So King Hoshea's plan ends in utter and total defeat. It's a disaster for Israel because Assyria comes with all of their military might and for three years lays siege to Samaria and then the people of Israel, once the city falls, are taken away as captives to Assyria. And in the ancient world, when you took away or conquered a, a new nation, you would take people from there, but instead of leaving it empty, because what's going to happen? Somebody else is going to kind of move into that territory and, and kind of figure things out, and maybe they'll mount a rebellion against you. And so what they would do in the ancient world is they would take a good chunk of the people away. So in this case, uh, the inscriptions in ancient Assyria let us know that they took about 27,000 people away, which was the bulk of the population of Syria and the surrounding region. And they took them away, and they 
resettled them in and around Nineveh and split them all up, sent them to all these different cities and regions. And then they took people from other areas that they had conquered and resettled them in Samaria and in and around the area of Israel. And the rationale for this is you don't want to try and get a whole block of people that are either ethnically or politically aligned in the same spot that might be able to mount a rebellion against you. And so it's a little bit like forced displacement. And so let's, we're going to try a little bit of that. So for example, we have a little bit of a family block that tends to sit in this area right here. Let's just call them the Schachter Nation. So the Schachter Nation might, you know, if we were like taking over, uh, we might decide to do some forced resettlement of the Schachter Nation. We might be like, we don't want them hanging out, you know, and like trying to get really strong together. So we might take the two of you and we're just going to resettle you. Just grab all, of, we'll be gracious. We'll let you take all of your stuff. Yep. We'll just move you over here. Some forced migration. Yep. That works. Kate, you can just enough space over there and then we'll figure out like who else do we need to break up? Do we need to make some forced migration happen around? Are there any other like, oh, Oh, look at this. Yeah, we have a bunch, oh, just a whole block of young adults here. This would be just really, you know, I'm going to leave them. You know, they're okay. We'll figure out uh, who else we need to move around. We'll just, you know, these, these two look like trouble here. We need to split these guys up. It's a little bit of forced, you know, move over. Yeah. So you get the idea, right? So you want to try and, if you're a conquering nation, break up some of this block of people and try and make sure that nobody gets too strong and can rise up against what you're doing. And so Assyria does this with Israel and takes all of these people. And what happens is, this is known as the exile. And the exile becomes one of the pivotal events in the story in, of God in the Old Testament and in the people lives in the Old Testament because it's so cataclysmic to their identity. It shapes the world that most of the Old Testament is written in. When you're reading the prophets, the prophets are most often writing either warnings, hey, be careful, or you're going to go into exile, or they're writing to the people in exile saying, God has not forgotten you, or they're writing to people who are just come back from exile saying, okay, gang, we need to get back on track with God in this way. And so massive chunks of the Old Old Testament's real estate actually speak to and are written at the time frame of the exile. And it shapes and has an impact on the imagination and on the experience of most of the Old Testament. And so it's really important to understand this event. And this event carries on and has impact. In fact, this very specific event in 2 Kings 17 has carried through into the New Testament because these people that are displaced from the area in the north, they actually never return to this. And the king of Assyria that brings all of these people back from other nations to resettle in this area there are some Jews and some non-Jews, and so they begin to intermarry. And so we have, when we get to the New Testament, this is what has resulted in the Samaritans. These are Samaritans in this area. These people who are partially Jews and partially non-Jews, and they are not really welcomed by the people of the southern kingdom who we'll talk about in subsequent weeks. 
And part of the, the story of that is they're a mixed race. And so when in John chapter four, Jesus interacts with the woman at the well in Samaria, the disciples say, don't talk to her. We can't be seen associating with these people. They're not pure, they're not like us. These are the people that have been resettled here centuries ago. Or when Jesus tells the story and the parable of the good Samaritan, his, his first hearers are totally shocked because for them, Samaritans are not good people. They're, they're people from somewhere else who got resettled here in ancient history and we don't like them and we don't want to associate with them in any way. They were forcibly relocated there, not because they wanted to be there, but because some king said, this is your new address. And so the tension and the dis-ease between Jews and Samaritans, in, even in the New Testament, becomes much more understandable for us when we read 2 Kings 17. And so this really does shape and form a massive part of the Old Testament. But just like any historical event, it's important not just to, un to think about what happened, but actually to understand why did it happen. And thankfully, 2 Kings continues and helps us understand this. Why did an entire people group lose their home and become refugees? 2 Kings 17, verses 7 and 8, the writer says, This disaster came upon the people of Israel because they worshipped other gods. They sinned against the Lord their God, who had brought them safely out of Egypt and rescued them from the power of Pharaoh the king of Egypt. They had followed the false practices of the pagan nations the Lord had driven from the land ahead of them, as well as the practices the kings of Israel had introduced. Then looking ahead at verse 13, again and again, the Lord sent his prophets and seers to warn both Israel and Judah, turn from your evil ways, obey my commands and decrees. The entire law I commanded your ancestors to obey and that I gave to you through my servants, the prophets. But the Israelites would not listen. They were as stubborn as their ancestors who had refused to believe in the Lord their God. They rejected his decrees and the covenant he'd made with their ancestors. They despised all of God's warnings and they worshipped worthless idols so they became worthless themselves. They rejected all of the commands of the Lord their God. And if you've been tracking with the series this summer, exile is not something that should surprise or shock us because the exile simply happened because of 200 plus years of persistent, willful, serious rebellion and disobedience to God's clear instructions. This was something that the people themselves should not have been shocked about. And I don't know about you, but I find it very easy to say to myself, oh yeah, those people back then, pff, they're just a bunch of idiots. 
You know, I would never do anything like that. Clearly, I would have seen this coming. I would have made adjustments to my spiritual life, to the political life, to areas of justice. But one of the things Pastor Mike and Pastor Wally have helped us see clearly over the course of the last few weekends is drawing that point of learning and application to our own lives. And so this morning, I want to shift the lens a little bit and look not so much at these people of Israel and what we learn from them, but to focus on God and God's actions and God's character. What do we learn about God through this experience and through the lens of exile? What do we learn about God's character? And in the exile event, we see three things clearly about God that are very relevant for you and I today for God's character and for how God interacts with us. So the first thing that we see is that God is incredibly patient and long-suffering. Hundreds and hundreds of years, God is waiting patiently through some incredibly, incredibly horrific events and leadership and choices on behalf of leaders and priests and people in the nation of Israel and we'll see in Judah to the south in coming weeks. But still, for over 200 years, God exercises patience. God says he sent prophets to them and warning time and time again. God sent foreign kings to get them back on track. God so deeply cares for them. God's deepest desire is for them to turn away from rebellion. But after 200 years, they just don't. And so God acts. Numbers chapter 14 is one of the places where the covenant that God made with the people, the agreement that God made with the people is is described. And in Numbers 14, verse 18, Moses says to the people this, the Lord, if you want to know what God's like, God is slow to anger. God is filled with unfailing love. God forgives every kind of sin and rebellion, but he also does not excuse the guilty. God's gracious. God is compassionate. God is slow to anger. God has amazing, rich, and deep, and abundant love and compassion. But God is also not interested in just blatantly sweeping horrific evils under the rug and just saying, ah, don't worry about it. No problems. 2 Kings 17.17 17 says that things had gotten so bad in the nation of Israel, that they were even sacrificing their own sons and daughters by fire. They were consulting fortune tellers. They practiced sorcery. They sold themselves to every kind of evil, arousing the Lord's anger. Things are not just a little bit off in Israel in this period of time. It's not a series of minor offenses and then suddenly the hammer comes down. God gives them time to repent. More than 200 years and repeated warnings. It's a little bit like, uh, how many of you have a, a dog or a cat? 
All right, and sometimes you have a dog or a cat, and then maybe you have little kids come over, right? And your dog or your cat, the kids get up in the dog's face or in the cat's face. And for a little while, the dog or the cat might have enough patience to be like, okay, I'm all right with these kids pulling my ears, sitting on my tail, all of this. But every now and then you get like a little warning, right? Like the dog will kind of turn its head and like kind of nip a little bit. Or the cat will go, one of those weird cat sounds like, like I'm about to blow up, right? (laughs) But, the, you know, it's patient. It's long-suffering with these kids. And then suddenly it's like, all right, we're done here. We're finished, right? <laughs> it's a little bit like that with this. God gave warnings, lots and lots of time and warning to the people to say, you know what, repent. Change your ways. This is unacceptable. There were warnings that this was a bad idea, but these people kept doing it anyways. I love the way Peter describes this process in the New Testament. Remember, Peter was a person who had lots of personal failures and lots of experiences with letting down Jesus. And in 2 Peter 3, verse 9, Peter says this. You know, when you think about God's patience and his long-suffering, the Lord isn't really being slow about his promise, as some people think. No. God's being patient for your sake. He does not want anyone to be destroyed. He wants everyone to repent. And so sometimes when we look at a situation, we can think, God, why aren't you acting? Why aren't you stepping in with more power, with more, just put a stop to this. This is ridiculous. Sometimes what we label as God's inaction is in some cases actually God's mercy because God is interested in giving you and I and others one of the most precious gifts that he can give to us, and that is time. Time to repent. See, God's not being patient for God's sake, but for our sake. God wants you and I to come to places of repentance in our lives. And Romans chapter 2 is clear about this. Romans 2 phrases it this way, that God's kindness is designed to lead us to repentance. And so the thing that we need to ask about our own lives is, is there anything in our lives that we need to think about repenting about? Is there anything in your life that God has been speaking to you about for a while and God's giving you time in God's grace to repent of it? but you've just put it off and said, no, what? I don't need to worry about that or think about that for now. I've still got a lot of time. I'm just gonna go and live how I want and I'll just do some repenting, you know, when I get old. Is there anything in your life that God might be inviting you to repent of while there is still time? Deuteronomy 29, 19. At the end of Moses' life, he says, those who hear these warnings should not congratulate themselves thinking, I'm safe. even though I'm following the desires of my own heart, doing whatever I want, this would lead to utter ruin. If God has or is speaking to you about something in your life that you need to change, do it today. Something that's wrong that needs to be made right. Maybe it's a relationship that's been fractured in some way. Pay attention to that. Now 
is the moment, the day to do something about that. Not saying, oh, I'll get around to it. I'll just live like I want for a while and then I don't, I don't need to pay attention to those things. God will, is gracious and is compassionate, but there is also a timeline. And when we repent, the act of repentance is just saying, God, I am agreeing with you that I'm in the wrong about what I've done or the good things that you've invited me to do that I've left undone or said no to doing. I'm changing my mind. I'm inviting you, God, by the Holy Spirit to change my heart, to clean it up, clean me up on the inside. Make me ready, make me willing to obey you. And so if God's warning you, maybe that's through another person who's trying to speak to you about things in your life that are out of alignment, that are not God's best for you. Maybe you feel a sense of conviction inside in your heart. It's just something that nags at you. This is like God's warning system. Don't ignore it. Pay attention to it. Process that with wise people around you. Spend time in prayer asking the Lord, God, what is it that in my heart you need to pay attention to? Because God's slow to anger and patient and filled with unfailing love, forgives every kind of sin and rebellion, but also does not excuse the guilty when we persist. So that's the first thing that we learn about God, that God is incredibly patient and long-suffering. God wants you and I to have time to repent. The second thing that we learn about God is that God is always faithful to God's promises. God is always faithful to God's promises. If God says something is going to happen, it will happen because God doesn't lie. See, back in the time of Moses, God makes this agreement with his people called a covenant. It's a promise that they each say to each other, the people say to God, and God says to the people, if you do these things, I will do these things. And so God makes incredible promises to the people. And the terms of the agreement are clearly laid out in Deuteronomy 28. And um, God says, if you obey, Moses speaking on God's behalf, says, if you obey the commands, the Lord your God, and walk in his ways, the Lord will establish you as his holy people, as he swore, he promised that he would do. Then all of the nations of the world will see that you are a people claimed by the Lord, and they're going to stand in awe of you. God promises that if his people walk in obedience to him, that God himself will walk with them and protect them and oversee them, and that they then will be a blessing not just as recipients of God's goodness, but there to be a blessing so that they can bless the world. That God promises that God will root and establish them in a land. They will be the people that other nations look to and desire to follow God in the ways that they are following God because the presence and the power of God are at work among them. That was their assignment. That was what God gave them to do. And they said very willingly, knowing all of the terms of the agreement, yes, we're good for that. Sign us up. We want that. But their ability to remain faithful to that over time became challenging. And so I need two volunteers 
um, and you can stay where you are, but you're just, just so you know what you're signing up for, you're going to play the part of a four-year-old child. So, you know, if you feel like you're very good at throwing temper tantrums, then this could be a good assignment for you. I think. People are like, no, all right, Ken. All right, Ken is going to play. All right. Perfect. I need one other person. Okay. Toro, do you want to volunteer? Okay, Ken and Toro, can you, you want to just stand here for a minute? Okay, so let's just say that you are both four-year-old children, right? So just go there in your mind, just think about, you know. All right, so I need one of you to be the well-behaved four-year-old. Okay, Toro has been nominated to be the well-behaved four-year-old, okay? All right, so Toro is going to be our well-behaved four-year-old. You know, Toro is just, oh, he's even brought some props to hang out. Awesome, we've got finger puppets, so that's great. So Toro, um, if let's just say I was uh, a parent and you were a four-year-old, and I just said, Toro, can you just sit quietly for a minute, please? Okay, okay look, he's already such an obedient. All right, so Ken is going to play the part of the non-obedient four-year-old, all right? So just think um, maybe, you know, how, how old are your kids? Eight and four. Eight and four, okay. So you have very real life, real world experience with this. So think about a moment that maybe, you know, it wasn't going so awesome and in four-year-old land in your, in your home, okay? So I'd like you to just throw like a four-year-old temper tantrum for us. Like, I'm like, Ken, can you please sit down? And you're like, yeah, right. Exactly, right? So, so we've got our obedient four-year-old child, our nice and well-behaved four-year-old child, and our temper tantrum four-year-old child. And so the question is, like, if I'm a parent, who do I want to kind of take out into the world, right, and represent my family, right? This is going to be a little bit of a challenge if over and over and over again, my temper tantrum four-year-old, like, is just not obedient in any way to the things that I asked this temper tantrum. Go ahead and throw the temper tantrum again. Yeah, exactly, right? So this is going to be a challenge for me. I'm trying to go out into the world, and people are encountering my family, and they're like, wow, that is really not working awesome for you guys. So, and then, if, but if you have a, a well-behaved four-year-old, you go out into the world, and it makes it a little bit easier. You know, we're not, we're going to be scaring the kids. <laughs> so, all right, so let's thank Ken and let's thank Toru for being our four-year-olds. We appreciate that, guys. Thanks, Toru. So, God had in God's mind a plan. God was like, okay, I'm going to choose the nation of Israel, this family. I'm going to work with them. And I want them to be an example to the world about what it means to live together and in human community and as a family and a relationship with God. And so as they went out into the world and the people of Israel kept throwing temper tantrums and disobeying God, in my mind, I'm picturing God going, this is not going well for my project, for humanity. God's ideal was to make Israel a light to the nations, that others would see how God dealt with that family and that group of people and they would be in awe of God. But Israel doesn't hold up their end of the bargain. In their actions, in their willful disobedience, in reality, they're like an unruly child. And it's as if then God gets to the place where God says, I can't take you anywhere. If you're going to behave this way, this is ridiculous. You're not showing the world what I'm like and what my family is like. And so listen to the consequences that God outlined 
in Deuteronomy chapter 28. Moses again is speaking and saying, Israel, if you refuse to listen to the Lord your God and you do not obey all the commands and decrees I'm giving you today, the Lord will exile you and your king to a nation unknown to you and your ancestors. And there in exile, you will worship whatever gods you want, wood, sticks, stones, you will become an object of horror, ridicule, and mockery among all of the nations to which the Lord sends you. This is centuries before the event of the exile. The arrangement that God made with the people and that the people agreed to, this was repeated for every single king that came to power so that they would remember this is what God wants and desires. It was repeated and proclaimed by the priests in the temple. It was to be taught by parents to their children. And so God was not unclear as to what God's expectations were. It's just that Israel decided like a child to throw temper tantrums, to refuse to obey God. And so finally God says, okay, you remember what I said? I'm going to follow through on it. It's like I can remember on long summer road trips, we would be sitting in the back seat, right? And my dad would be driving and we would be bugging each other as kids and poking each other and stealing each other's stuff. And then as a parent who's driving, what do you say? You say, if you don't stop that, I'm going to pull this car over or I'm going to turn this car around or whatever it is, right? Eventually, you got to follow through on that. Otherwise, it just gets totally out of control. And so this is the point. This is that moment where God finally does what God promised and what the people agreed to and says, finally, we're finished with this. You are not going to be able to continue to live out my vision for human flourishing. And so we're reminded even in the exile that God always keeps God's promises. When God says something will happen, even if it takes a long period of time, it happens. But this isn't just about what God did. Because remember, God kept God's end of the agreement. But God also said to the people, remember, this is about how you act and interact. Your actions are going to determine God's response. And so in a very real way, God turned over the people of Israel. He gave them control of the outcome of their story and God's story and God's reputation. And this is the concept of free will. That God isn't interested in prefabricating absolutely everything and just getting robots to kind of mechanistically worship and be in relationship with God. God is actually dynamically interested in the choices that you and I make and how those choices impact our world and our future. Activist Mahatma Gandhi was fond of saying, the future depends on what you do today. In other words, the consequences, the choices that you and I make today are real. They have meaningful consequences for the future and on the future of those around us. It's like planting a seed and then just waiting and seeing what you do, how you water it, how you care for that plant determines in some ways how it's going to grow and flourish. And Israel had their choice, forsake 
God or follow God, and they had to live with the impact of the choices that they made collectively and individually. And so the question we have to ask is, what choices am I making today that'll have an impact on people around me? Israel's choices had a massive impact. Their idolatry resulted in other nations failing to learn about God and worship God, as was God's intent. In this case, Hoshea's treachery resulted not only in his capture, but also the overthrow of the entire nation. Our choices have impact and consequences. And sometimes we just live with a really short lens or a very self-focused lens. For example, we think to ourselves, ah, it's not a big deal if I don't bring my kids to church. They'll, they'll figure it out. They'll grow up and figure it out. But we wonder then why when kids miss a formative part of their years and experience and they grow up and don't have an interest in God. It's the choices that we've made as those responsible in their young lives. Or we think, well, no big deal. I'm just going to take that summer vacation now. I don't have any clue how we're going to pay for it, but we'll figure it out. And then we're surprised when we're pressed financially. Choices that we make today have impact on tomorrow. And for us here at Jericho, that's one of the reasons why a couple of years ago when we began to pray as a leadership team, we felt that a physical presence in our neighborhood was going to be important because we began to look not just a few years or a few months into the future, but years into the future and ask, what would it look like to have a lasting impact on this area that God's called us to. And as we spent time praying and discerning that, it became clear to us that we would be able to have a deeper and longer impact if we acted now to secure space. And so that's what led us to this place in God's grace and in his faithfulness. And the reason why we're renovating this and the reason why we're stepping into this place together is because we believe not just what it's going to do for our present ministry, but we're looking to the future, future generations who are going to live in Clayton and Willoughby and saying what we do now is going to have an impact on them and our ability to do ministry in a post-Christian context that we live in. And so what we do today has a big impact on the spirituality and the lives of people here in Willoughby and Clayton generations from now. The future depends on what we do today, making good choices with our time, with our finances. And the third and final thing we learn about God in this exile event is that even when we think that things are dark and there is absolutely no hope, picture those people marching from Syria to Assyria living in a new land and thinking, what in the world has happened to us? Are we ever going to find our way home? Even when we think that there's no hope, God always provides a way back. See, it's easy to look at this moment in the life of Israel and just think, oh yeah, God's written them off. He's finished with them because of their disobedience. But even in the midst of their sin, in the midst of their darkest moment, God sends them two prophets, Hosea and Amos. Listen to what Hosea says in Hosea 3.5. Afterwards, the people will return. They will devote themselves to the Lord their God and to David's descendant, their king. That's a prophecy about Jesus the Messiah. In those days, the last days, they will tremble in awe at 
the Lord and all of his goodness. In that day, Amos says, I will restore the fallen house of David. I will repair its damaged walls. And from the ruins, I will rebuild it. I will bring my exiled people of Israel back from distant lands. And they will rebuild their ruined cities and live at them, in them again. See, we can look at things from a human perspective and think, well, there's no hope for these people. But friends, that is never how God operates. God is always responsive to those who turn back to him. It doesn't matter how far you've walked away. Today is the day to get back on that path. Ron and the worship team are going to come. And as they come, I want us to reflect on the question, is there anything in your life that feels like it is beyond repair? Something that's just too far gone. It's too dark in your thinking. It's just incredibly hopeless. Maybe it's a situation that you've given up on. Maybe it's a relationship that feels so broken or so distant that you just can't imagine anything, seeing a way forward. Maybe you're a student and you're looking ahead to the next school year and you're faced with fear that paralyzes you. Maybe you think about your job and your vocational future and you don't know what's next. What in your life feels like it's beyond repair? Friends, God specializes in taking things that are broken, things that feel hopeless, things that feel impossible, and breathing new life into them, bringing healing and bringing restoration. And we as a community want to join God in that process. That's why we have our prayer teams available at the back. They want to stand with you and pray for the things in those areas in your life that you maybe don't even have the faith to believe God for, that you look at and say, there's just no hope, I can't picture it. And so today at the back, we have Ali Nicole, we have James Carpenter, we have Katie Kwan, we have Dale Moore, they have name tags on, and they would be pleased to pray with you.